This evening we come to the third term of communion. We have thus far considered term number one, an acknowledgement of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. And term number two, that the whole doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, larger and shorter, are agreeable unto and founded upon the Scriptures. The third term of communion is this, that presbyterial church government and manner of worship are alone of divine right and unalterable and that the most perfect model of these as yet attained is exhibited in the form of government and directory for worship adopted by the Church of Scotland in the Second Reformation. And so we're going to be considering this evening the form of Presbyterial Church government that you'll find if you have a copy of this volume in the back. Uh, We're going to be considering that. Next time we meet, we'll be considering the directory for the public worship of God. So our comments, our remarks will be focused upon church government this evening. The form of Presbyterial Church government was completed by the Westminster Assembly at the close of 1644 and approved by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, February 10, 1645. I'm simply going to ask a question and and going to uh, spend the rest of the time answering that question. What is Presbyterianism? And four main points, four main points to the outline this evening. What is Presbyterianism? And so I'll give you the main points, and then we'll go back and consider those main points. First main point, Presbyterianism is church government by divine right. Second main point, Presbyterianism teaches Jesus Christ is alone the head of the church. Third main point, Presbyterianism teaches that Jesus Christ rules his church by means of elders. Fourth main point, Presbyterianism teaches that the church of Jesus Christ is one visible and universal church and is composed of all those who profess the true religion and their children. Not finished yet with that main point. And particular churches ought to strive to manifest this one visible and universal church by being united together in one doctrine, one government, one worship, and one discipline. 
those are our four main points this evening. <clears throat> what is Presbyterianism? Number one, Presbyterianism is church government by divine right, or as the divines used to say, just divinum, just divinum. It's not a government established by human authority or a government based upon man-made constitutions consisting of humanly devised officers or offices. Presbyterianism makes no claim to be simply the preferred form of church government among other viable forms of church government. It makes the exclusive claim to be the one and only form of church government authorized by Christ in the Scriptures. In Acts 15, we find there uh, the council known as the Council or the Synod of Jerusalem. And in that particular account, there arises a question concerning circumcision in the church of Antioch, which uh, most likely even the church of Antioch was a presbytery consisting of more than one church within that city. Many, many disciples and believers within that particular church in Antioch and uh, there are uh, inferences that would lead us to believe that that was even more than one church and probably a presbytery there. And so, having received this particular problem, the elders of that presbytery send commissioners to Jerusalem to adjudicate, to render a decision concerning this issue as to whether a person must be circumcised in order to uh, be a Christian, in order to be saved. In order, should that be a term of communion in order to come into the church of Jesus Christ? And we see the Synod at Jerusalem, they're ruling on behalf of all of the churches. And that particular decision carries the authority of the church as a whole and of Jesus Christ in particular. And that decision is not simply carried back to Antioch. It not, it not only pertains to the believers and the churches within Jerusalem and Judea, but the Apostle Paul takes that decision to all of the Gentile churches to which he travels as well, thereby indicating that all of the churches are bound together. They're not disconnected, independent congregations. And then we find in 1 Timothy 4.14, 1 Timothy 4.14, the word itself, presbytery, where the Apostle Paul, speaking to Timothy, says to him, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. 
And so other forms of church government, whether that be independency or congregationalism, or whether it be Episcopal form of government, or uh, we might call the Episcopal form of government a hierarchical form of government, these other forms of government are not biblical and thus are not of divine right. They do not find uh, approbation. They do not find uh, authority from the scriptures. And so that's the first main point. Uh, Presbyterianism is church government by divine right. <clears throat> As you'll see, I'm not going through the uh, our... Uh, form of Presbyterian church government page by page, what I'm doing by asking this question and summarizing it is bringing together what is stated in that uh, document as well as in the uh, uh, Confession of Faith uh, as well as in other acts and decisions of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And so I'm kind of collating several different sources, but bringing them together to answer that question, what is Presbyterianism? <clears throat> the second point, Presbyterianism teaches that Jesus Christ is alone the head of the church. Not the Pope, uh, contrary to the view of the, of, uh, the Church of Rome. Not the King, contrary to the view of Erastianism found in the Church of England. Remember, Erastianism says that the civil ruler is a governor or head of the church, uh, that uh, the civil uh, governor, the civil magistrate, can uh, uh, participate, can uh, actually convene meeting, meetings of uh, uh, church courts, can dissolve meetings of church courts, these types of things. Uh, no, it's not the king, the civil magistrate either, that is the head of the church. <clears throat> Our confession of faith in chapter 25, paragraph 6, says there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. One head. All of the images that we have in the uh, Bible that Paul uses with regard to the body of Christ, uh, there are not two heads to that body. There are not three heads to that body. There's only one head. And that alone head is stated to be Jesus Christ. Therefore, all authority to rule and govern the visible church proceeds from Christ and is established in the Word of God. All authority proceeds directly from Jesus Christ to rule on His behalf. And that rule is established by that church's faithfulness to the Word of God. To the degree that a church is not faithful to the Word of God, to that degree it does not have lawful authority to rule on behalf of Jesus Christ. To the degree that a church is faithful to the Word of God, to that degree... It has authority to rule on behalf of Christ. <clears throat> the third main point, you may be saying, we're sure moving through this rather quickly. Well, 
we're going to get hung up here in the third point for a little while. <clears throat> the third point, Presbyterianism teaches that Jesus Christ rules his church by means of elders or presbyters. That's where the word Presbyterian comes from, from the Greek word presbyteros or presbyter, meaning elder, a rule by elders. Not a rule by means of kings, as we said already, which is Erastianism, not a rule by means of bishops, that would be episcopacy or prelacy, this hierarchy uh, within the church, the rule of these individuals um, uh, who uh, one above the other. Nor is it the rule by the members of the congregation, a democracy. Those three forms of government are not the same as Presbyterianism or the rule by elders. <clears throat> For the church is a kingdom. It is a kingdom, not a democracy. It is a kingdom ruled by Christ, the king, and by his vice regents, the elders of the church, his vice regents. To the elders is are uh, to the elders are committed the keys of the kingdom. We want to say something about that. The keys of the kingdom are committed to the elders. That is the spiritual administration of the kingdom of Christ is committed to the elders. The spiritual, not the civil not the political, but the spiritual administration and rule of the church. That means that we do not, as elders have committed to us, <clears throat> the, the power of the sword. We do not have committed to us the power of coercion, physical coercion. Ours is a moral persuasion and force that God has given to us, not a physical coercion. It is spiritual in nature. And in this, the spiritual nature and authority which Christ has committed to the elders is the authority to open, on his behalf, to open the doors of the visible kingdom to those who profess Christ in the truth and to close the doors of the visible kingdom to those who do not profess Christ or the truth. <clears throat> and in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16 and chapter 18, Two passages which open up to us this doctrine of the keys of the kingdom. 
Lord Jesus asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And the confession of Peter, the profession of the truth, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that foundation of the truth, see, that particular truth, and all of the truth revealed by God forms the foundation, Christ being the chief cornerstone, but the apostles and prophets forming the foundation. What they taught, forming that foundation. Remember, the church is the pillar and ground or support of the truth. <clears throat> and so, upon that particular rock, that foundation, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Peter as representative of all whom Christ commissions to uh, lead his church. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, these keys speak of entrance and admission into the visible kingdom or exclusion from the visible kingdom. <clears throat> and uh, we find in chapter 18 of Matthew, section dealing with, with um, how a brother is to be reconciled to another brother, the steps that one is to go through, beginning with confronting that brother with his own sin. <coughs> if he will not listen, then bringing another witness or two. In verse 16, if he still will not listen, bringing it to the church. And in when it says bringing it to the church, that has to do with bringing it to the officers of the church to hear and to pronounce judgment if he still will not hear. If he does, then there is a uh, pro- proclamation of Forgiveness. Not that the church has the power to forgive, but the church has the power and authority to proclaim that forgiveness on behalf of Christ. The elders of the church have that authority to do so. But the elders also have the authority to excommunicate or to exclude from the visible church as well. And to put one outside of that visible church until there is repentance. When one is put outside of the visible church, that's not the same thing as saying that he is, however, a non-Christian, that he is going to hell. It is saying that he, because of his unrepentant sin, is not to have the same status with those who are viewed as members of the visible church. He's not to enjoy all of those same privileges. He is to be treated 
as one. Not he's not he is not a publican and a sinner, but he is to be treated as a publican and a sinner. He is to be withdrawn from. He's not to have that familiar fellowship with any longer until he does repent. But again, in that particular, um, uh, at that particular point, Jesus says in verse 18, Matthew 18, 18, Verily I say unto you, <clears throat> now this is in the plural, whereas chapter 16 was in the singular, Peter is representative of the apostles and, uh, and elders. Here, this is in the plural. But verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What if some court of Jesus Christ uh, excommunicates or some some, let's say, so-called court of Jesus Christ excommunicates a, um, a believer who ought not to have been excommunicated, who was righteous in their cause, and it was wicked on their part for them to excommunicate or to depose a minister. How do we judge that? Are they deposed? Are they excommunicated? No. It's only in so far as what they judge and decide as being consistent with the Constitution, namely the Word of God. And then verses 19 and 20, I think are always helpful to add because I think these are taken out of context quite, quite often. There certainly may be applications of these, but I think we, to these, I think we ought to, however, understand the context. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. Two or three witnesses. Two or three who have acted as a court of the Lord Jesus Christ in matters pertaining to, um, to discipline. <clears throat> Verse 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so Jesus is simply saying, when my elders, my vice regents, act on behalf of the king in a faithful manner, I'm in their midst. I pronounce judgment, just as they have. It's bound in heaven. <clears throat> the spiritual nature of the rule which the elders have is also indicated in Hebrews 13.17. Hebrews 13.17, which says... Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Watch over your souls. <coughs> and so a spiritual nature 
And so we must, again, recognize the distinction between church government and civil government. They are both governed by the law of God, but one is not to intermeddle with the other. One is to facilitate and to defend the proper use of the other and to promote its proper use, but not to usurp its place. Therefore, when the elders meet together, they are a court. I may have said that term earlier, but I want to emphasize it. They are a court of Jesus Christ. That's why at the local level, level a particular of a particular church, the court of Jesus Christ is called a session. Have you ever heard the phrase the court is in session? Well, that's what we're that's what is being indicated that that a court of Jesus Christ is in session at this local level. Another point concerning the rule of elders, the authority of elders is not absolute nor autonomous. But on the other hand, it is limited and derivative in authority. It's limited in its authority because Jesus Christ is the king. The elders cannot do anything contrary to the will of Jesus Christ. It is limited. And its authority is derivative. It's ministerial authority. They derive their authority only from Christ. And when they abuse that authority by not acting according to the will of Christ, they are not to be followed or listened to. When they act contrary, they are not to be followed or listened to. They have usurped the place of Jesus Christ at that point. Still under this third point, the end and purpose toward which the authority of elders is to be used is for the building up and edification of the church of Jesus Christ. not for its destruction. Not to destroy the work of God, but to build it up. And that's exactly what the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8. <clears throat> Paul says, For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And then in 2 Corinthians 13.10, again Paul says, Therefore I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. And so even when the apostle uses 
his authority. And even when the elders use their authority to discipline, it is for edification of the church, not for destruction. And then Ephesians 4.12 says, beginning with verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. This is the purpose of the goal for the perfecting, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has given those gifts to the church to build it up, not to destroy it. (coughs) And you always know that, that elders are building up the body of Christ and the church of Jesus Christ when they are promoting the purity of truth and unfeigned love. When they go contrary to the truth, they are not, whether they say it's for the sake of love, whether they say it's for the sake of unity, whatever reason they may give, but when they are not promoting the purity of the truth and promoting true, sincere, and unfeigned love, They are using their authority to the destruction of the church and not to its building up and edification. Another point under this third point, the authority of Christ does not reside in one elder acting alone, but resides in a plurality of elders, emphasizing plurality. Plurality of elders, that is, teaching elders and ruling elders together, acting in concert with the same authority. Though we'll look in just a a moment or so at the difference between ruling elders and teaching elders, as it pertains to the rule within the church, the teaching elders do not have more authority than ruling elders nor do ruling elders have more authority than teaching elders. You know, in some churches, the, the ruling elders just push the, the pastor around any which direction they want to go. I've seen that, and I've seen the other way, where you had a pastor who was just pushing everybody else around. But see, in Presbyterianism, there is a plurality of, of elders with equal authority to rule within the church on behalf of Christ. In Titus 1.5, touching the subject of plurality of elders, Titus 1.5, Paul says to Titus, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders, plural, in every city as I had appointed thee. Not a choice, not an option, elders, plural, in every city, universally, plurality of elders. 
So Presbyterianism is opposed to not only a one-man dictatorship where authority is vested in one man, but Presbyterianism is also opposed to a many-people democracy where authority is vested in a majority of the congregation. The one exception where God does authorize a congregation to express their consent is in calling men to lead them. Calling men, whether teaching elders, ruling elders, and also men who serve them as in the office of deacon. Calling these men, consenting to their call. We see, for example, in 1 Timothy <clears throat> chapter Hmm. Let me see here. I'm sorry, let me start with Acts 6, not 1 Timothy. Acts 6. Where in Acts 6, we find men who are needed to serve tables. And uh, this would be the... Um, foundation or the beginning of the office of deacon in the at least the first uh, very clear reference to that it was probably uh, it probably existed uh, in some form in the uh, Jewish church in the synagogues of old but here we find a very clear reference when the apostles tell the people in verse 3 6 3 Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so the appointing, the setting aside, the ordaining to office is that of the, is that of the presbytery or the, or the uh, elders. But the consent and approval of gifts is needed as well by the congregation. And uh, we see that again <clears throat> implied, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, where the apostle says, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You know, know something about these people. Approve of them. <clears throat> and so the congregation is to express its, uh, its consent in calling Men, and calling men, not women, calling men. In some churches, women are called to serve as officers within the church. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says concerning women and leadership within the church, <clears throat> But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. 
And uh, then we also see in First Timothy chapter three, verse one, it says, if a man aspires to the office of bishop, not if a woman, if a man. <clears throat> and the congregation is to consent to qualified men. Now, we're, we're building on this qualified, not just men. They're not simply to consent to anybody. They're to consent to men. They're con- to consent to qualified men. In other words, there are qualifications that the Scripture gives to hold office within the church. Not just anyone can hold office within the church. <clears throat> And we find those qualifications mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13. It's certainly implied in 1 Timothy 5:22, where Paul says, Don't lay hands suddenly upon any man. Implied, you know, make sure he is tested, tried, qualified to serve before he is set in that place. And so qualified men. <clears throat> the, uh, the acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland, uh, session 17, December the 10th, 1638, states that no person be intruded in any office of the Kirk, that is church, Contrary to the will of the congregation to which they are appointed. That's an act of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland. And we do, as we will see, consider the acts of the General Assembly to be uh, as well binding upon us. Uh, We'll talk a, a little bit about that in just a moment. And so, no person is to be intruded upon a congregation. And uh, that would imply, again, consent and approval on the part of the congregation, which would also imply that the congregation needs to be uh, informed as to the proper qualifications. They need to be able to judge and measure who is qualified and who is not qualified. Do they meet the standards that the Scripture gives? One of the standards that is given in the form of government is that the person... Uh, who presents himself for uh, uh, to be licensed or ordained, uh, whether a minister uh, in the in the form of government, it's I believe speaking specifically of of ministers, but in the Acts of General Assembly, it speaks of all officers as well uh, that all officers must subscribe the covenant of the three kingdoms. And uh, so that as well is specifically mentioned in uh, which is the Solemn League and Covenant. Now, let me just very quickly, um, before we move on to the fourth point, uh, say something about the officers of the church. There are three offices within the church. there uh, sometimes the, there are said before, and I'll explain why there are some say three, some say four. Um, um, 
Considered from this view, there would be three offices. There would be teaching elders, ruling elders, and deacons. Under the office of teaching elder, we find that teaching elders alone are those who have been ordained to preach and teach within the church. Those who are specifically set aside for preaching and teaching are teaching elders. For example, in Ephesians 4.11, Ephesians 4.11, notice what Paul, to whom Paul says the ministry is given. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists. I understand those to be temporary <clears throat> temporary gifts, which have now uh, passed away. And then, and some pastors and teachers, those are permanent gifts which Christ has given to the church until he returns. Pastors and teachers. Those are the two uh, offices, and that's why some see four offices. They would say there are four offices, pastor, teacher, elder, meaning ruling elder, and deacon. <clears throat> uh, but here we find the uh, two, uh, two uh, branches of a teaching elder. Uh, in Romans chapter 7, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, Notice again in verses 7 through 8, Romans 12, 7 through 8. Here the apostle mentions various gifts, beginning with verse 6, talks about prophecy. Verse 7, or ministry, let us wait on our ministry, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. Or he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. He that ruleth with diligence. He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Now he's listing here the function rather than specifically the office. But he mentions teaching. That's a teacher. One who exhorts most likely would be the pastor. And we'll see here the difference in just a moment between, uh, between a teacher and a pastor. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, again, <clears throat> the office of, of teacher. And God hath said... Some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. And then verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers. Those are teaching elders. And then in 1 Timothy 5.17... 1 Timothy 5.17 We see a distinction between elders and those who labor in word and doctrine. 
says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, ruling elders, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine, especially those who have been set apart, ordained to labor in word, in the word and doctrine. So here's a distinction between ruling elders and teaching elders. Now, pastors, <clears throat> let's talk about pastors and then we'll talk about teachers very quickly. What belongs to the office of pastor? You'll find these in the form of government. And so these I've just uh, uh, copied out of the form of government. But number one, to pray for and with his flock, to read the scriptures publicly, to feed the flock, to catechize to administer the sacraments, to bless the people from God, to care, to take care of the poor, those who are in need, <clears throat> to rule over the flock. Those are the, the various items that belong to the office of a pastor. What about teachers? Or another term that's used for teachers, uh, you'll find in some of the literature, is doctors. Teachers or doctors, not physicians, but uh, teachers in the sense of having a, an ability uh, to, uh, uh, to, to teach the Word of God very competently. They've shown themselves to be very competent. They've been, been doctors in the faith, as it were. What, dis what distinguishes a teacher from a pastor? Well, a teacher is a minister of the Word, and has authority to administer the sacraments. So does a pastor, right? So they're, they're the same with regard to that. Furthermore, the teacher expounds the scripture, teaches sound doctrine, and convinces those who contradict the truth. Whereas the pastor not only does that, but the pastor excels in the application of doctrine to the lives of people. This is what our form of government says, is the difference. That where you have more than one teaching elder within a congregation, that one would serve as pastor, and the other or others would serve as teachers or doctors. Now, all of them must be competent in the Word of God, and all can administer the sacraments, but that which distinguishes a pastor from the teacher would be that the pastor seems to have a gift out of those who are teaching up church to be able to, to apply that particular doctrine to the lives of people. The uh, second office is that of ruling elders, or as is found in our uh, form of government, church governors. Ruling elders or church governors. Where do we find that office in the scripture? Well, in Romans 12.8. Romans 12.8, where we read earlier, we read of him that, in verse 7, he that teacheth on teaching. And notice, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. But then we find 
as well, uh, he that ruleth with diligence. He that ruleth. There is the function for the office of ruling elder, as distinguished from him who teaches. Now, both of them rule. But what is specifically characteristic about the ruling elder is that he rules. That doesn't mean that the teaching elder doesn't rule. They both rule, but what distinguishes one from the other is that the one has the authority to teach, the other one has the authority to rule. We also find the same distinction made in 1 Corinthians 12:28, which we saw just a few moments ago. Again, and God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps governments. Governments. That is, those who lead in the church government. Those who have the authority to rule. Governments. <clears throat> and then... The passage I mentioned earlier, 1 Timothy 5.17, where it distinguishes those who rule and the, from those who labor in the word and doctrine. And so they're ruling elder and teaching elder. And what does the ruling elder do? Well, he assists ministers, he assists the teaching elder in the government of the church. He, uh, he has a particular care. For example, it's the, it should be the care of the presbytery to oversee the, the doctrine and the preaching and teaching of the minister, but uh, also the ruling elders uh, should certainly be informed enough to be able to tell the difference between truth and heresy. They should know enough to be able to make those distinctions. They could correct uh, a pastor or a teacher in a particular area. They have that authority from Christ. Um, the third office is that of deacon. And we saw in Acts chapter 6 where that was uh, first uh, uh, formed and, uh, and we won't look at that again. In Romans chapter 12, we won't look at that, but it does talk about there in Romans 12, he who giveth. Um, that's one, the, the deacon who serves the poor, who gives to the poor, who administers uh, God's blessings to the, those who are in need. Uh, that's Romans 12, verses 7 through 9. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, the gift of helps is... Uh, I believe a reference to the function that a deacon does perform. He helps assist those who are in need. In Philippians 1.1, you find that letter addressed by Paul to the church of Philippi, to the bishops and deacons, to the teaching elders and the, or to the, to the elders and to the, you say, instead of bishops, because bishops uh, uh, is also used uh, interchangeably with elders. And so to, the, to those who rule and to the deacons, 
to those who exercise oversight in the congregation, which again, uh, perhaps specifically refers to the teaching elder, but it also, I think, by implication, takes into to, uh, view the uh, ruling elder as well. And then in uh, 1 Timothy 3, <clears throat> verse 8, we find uh, a whole set of, of qualifications uh, for the deacon, the office of deacon as well. And so the office of deacon is not an office of governing or ruling, as is the office of teaching elder and ruling elder, but rather an office of service, help, and assistance to those who are in need. Okay, the last main point. The last main point concerning Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism teaches that the church of Jesus Christ is one visible and universal church and is composed of all those who profess the true religion and their children. And particular churches ought to strive to manifest this one visible and universal church by being united together in one doctrine, one worship, one government, and one discipline. And we find that oneness, uh, all of the times that you hear oneness in that main point, Emphasize for us in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And under this fourth point, I have four subpoints, and we will then be finished. First of all, Presbyterianism teaches the need to manifest biblical unity or oneness. Some people may think that Presbyterianism uh, is actually promoting division, a unlawful an unhealthy division, but actually biblical Presbyterianism teaches the need to manifest biblical unity and oneness. <clears throat> the second subpoint: Presbyterianism teaches the need to manifest uniformity in doctrine, government, worship, and discipline. Not plur- pluralism not allowing people to believe whatever they want to believe, but informing people, thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. Those who are united together in this church, this is what you must affirm. This is what the Bible teaches. And to hold a position or a view contrary to this is to deny that oneness. Because it says, that we just read in Ephesians 4, there's only one faith. That faith which, for which we're to cont- earnestly contend, which was once and for all delivered unto the saints. 
There's not many faiths. There's one. Third, Presbyterianism teaches there is a grading of church courts. By that I mean there are lower courts and higher courts. There is a grading of church courts. There is, in the particular church, a session. There is, above the session, a presbytery. Above the presbytery, a synod. And above the synod, the general assembly. And with each court, as you go up the ladder, there is an increased authority. Each step up that ladder. <clears throat> That's not to say that, that uh, uh, a higher court has the authority to force a lower court to do something unbiblical. That's not what I mean by that. But a higher court does have the authority on behalf of Christ to, to compel, morally compel, a lower court to follow its decision as it is agreeable to the Word of God. Therefore, a decision that is appealed from a lower court to a higher court may either be upheld or overturned by a higher court. Lower courts may not rule, this is an important point, lower courts may not rule contrary to the lawful acts and decisions of higher courts. That is not Presbyterianism. That's independency. Don't confuse the two. When a lawful decision is rendered by a higher court, a lower court is required to submit, to obey it. Lower courts are bound by all lawful decisions of higher courts. <clears throat> This divine rule of church government, if you properly understand it, I believe it manifests the oneness of the church of Jesus Christ. When you understand the grading of church courts, when you understand how all church courts are to be united together in one faith, in one doctrine, government, worship, and discipline, that manifests the unity of the body of Christ, not the division and schism within the body of Christ, but unity. It manifests that all true churches of Christ ought to be so bound one to another in the truth. That's the ideal. That's what we should be promoting. That's what we should be praying for, both publicly and privately in our family worship for that unity within the church. Not a unity based upon uh, simply love, throwing truth out the door, but on the basis of truth. Question. What is to be done in the case where many years of backsliding have intervened between the lawful decisions of a faithful general assembly and the renewal of a remnant of faithful churches. 
Here was a faithful general assembly who made many acts, decisions, had a constitution. Many years of backsliding have intervened. Now there is a faithful remnant that is seeking to be faithful to the truths of God's Word. What are they to do? How should the few churches who now are seeking to to be faithful, how should they govern themselves? Well, whether it is one church, two churches, ten churches, or a hundred churches that have been united together, that are faithful, (coughs) they should acknowledge that they are not a national church, that they are not a general assembly. And therefore, they ought to be in subjection to all the lawful acts and decisions of a lawful general assembly. They ought to find a lawful general assembly, one that is faithful to the word of God, and say, we bind ourselves to this, the highest court. We will follow in their steps. We're not going to rule ourselves by the seat of our pants, We're not going to uh, act as independents and make decisions just as we go along. We're going to be in subjection to a lawful general assembly, the highest court. And so though they may in one sense look like they are all alone, that church or those two or three churches, that are seeking to be faithful, they may appear to be all by themselves. They may appear to be very, uh, so exclusive, uh, so separatistic, because they're seeking to be faithful and adhering to the constitution of a faithful general assembly that's no longer held to. Nobody considers it to be uh, lawful or faithful or doesn't care or is ignorant They may look like they're all alone, but their acknowledged uh, submission to a lawful general assembly and by that acknowledged submission to a lawful general assembly, they demonstrate themselves to be one in presbyterial unity with the Presbyterian and covenanted church. And as we have adopted uh, the standards we have of the Presbyterian and Covenanted Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation. In other words, we see ourselves as under their authority. Just as the apostles and the prophets can legitimately still rule, though they're dead, through what they have written, though we would certainly qualify what they've written is inspired, so do faithful general assemblies, though the members of that assembly are dead, they still rule insofar as their rulings and their decisions and their acts are agreeable to the teaching of the apostles and the prophets Jesus Christ as well being the chief cornerstone. And so you do not need to have necessarily a living general assembly in order to be submissive to their authority. 
Though we presently in our church are just one session, we do not rule as one session. We rule as a session under a national general assembly, the Church of Scotland of the Second Reformation. It's very, very important that we realize that. That ought to bring, I believe, a great deal of comfort to the people when they realize again that they have access to those particular documents uh, in something like this, the Acts of the General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland from the year 1638 to the year 1649 inclusive. To be able to, uh, to uh, uh, read through that document to see what the Acts of the General Assembly, we bind I have bound ourselves to these particular documents as elders. <clears throat> that is biblical Presbyterianism. And I simply want to read to you a couple things here. I know I'm running a little over time, but uh, I'm just, just about finished. <clears throat> Listen to this. I found this quite interesting. This is on page 15 um, in this document. It says, In all lawful assemblies, the grounds of proceeding were and used to be, number one, the Word of God, number two, the confession of faith, and third, acts of former general assemblies. Lawfully constituted assemblies. You don't just throw away what's gone before us. We see ourselves again as one moral person with those who have preceded us. We're not many different individuals uh, as different denominations or churches. We ought to be striving to become one person, one church who is governed by one set of laws, one constitution, and again, we believe this to be the purest constitution, the most faithful constitution to the Word of God. If there were a more faithful constitution, we should follow that. But we believe this is the most faithful. And then one other thing I would read that would emphasize the same thing <clears throat> is the emphasis, again, there were certain things historically that, uh, that occurred between um, the General Assemblies that met prior to 1638. There are many things, uh, various issues related to prelacy, uh, innovations in worship, through the Book of uh, Common Prayer, things like this that were introduced. Now, what did they do? These were introduced by uh, various uh, uh, churches in the Church of Scotland, general assemblies, though they were not uh, uh, lawful general assemblies. Nevertheless, a lot of these things were instituted. What did a true general assembly do? Well, listen very closely. I found this very uh, interesting. 
talking about the national covenant that was um, uh, that was subscribed in 1638. It says that the said covenant suspendeth the practice of novations or innovations already introduced and the approbation of the corruptions of the present government of the Kirk with the civil places and power of Kirkman till they be tried in a free general assembly. Suspend them until they are tried by a free general assembly. In other words, they don't have any authority to be introduced until you have another general assembly, a free and lawful general assembly who rules. And so you go from general assembly to general assembly. We therefore would understand we don't have the right we don't have the authority as simply one session to overturn what our forefathers have given to us in a general assembly. <clears throat> and so this explains why even in an area like lining of the Psalms, and we'll talk more about that next week because we'll talk about the directory for public worship, but as pertains to lining of the Psalms, our session, we, we uh, believe very strongly that we cannot alter the practice established by that faithful General Assembly. Another General Assembly would be needed to alter that practice, not a session, not a church. Any more than a church at that particular time or a presbytery that was living at that particular time could have said, well, we don't really care for this practice of lining out the Psalms. No, they had to abide since it was not contrary to the Word of God, since it was agreeable to the Word of God, it was a lawful act and decision, then everyone below was required and bound to follow. Independency would say, you know, every, every congregation or presbytery can basically choose and decide what they want to do. But not in Presbyterianism. And the last point very quickly, under that, uh, the, the last uh, sub-point and the last main point, Presbyterianism teaches that not to be governed by a lawful general assembly and to establish a constitution contrary to the biblical constitution of a lawful general assembly is to form a church that is unfaithful and not duly constituted to go contrary to a lawfully constituted General Assembly to enact a constitution that is contrary to that constitution which they enacted is to fall away from the truth. It is to become unfaithful and it is not a duly constituted court. It has fallen. It's backslidden. See, that is the essence, again, of independency as a form of government, not Presbyterianism. How else is it possible to acknowledge biblical unity and uniformity of the Church of Jesus Christ when each Presbyterian church or denomination has formed a constitution different from the other or the next Denomination. How can you possibly uh, practice biblical Presbyterianism if every denomination forms its own constitution? It's not possible. 
we have to get back to biblical Presbyterianism. The Bible speaks of diversity within unity, diversity understood as spiritual gifts within one church, diverse members, meaning spiritual gifts. That's true. But diverse constitutions within one church? Absolutely not. No diversity in that sense. Uniformity in that sense. All right, that's the end of our lecture. A lot of material, I know, tonight. And uh, you might uh, want to, uh, uh, even though you're here, you heard it, you may want to get a tape and listen to it again because it was, uh, uh, there was a lot of material in this uh, lecture. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.